0: A number of years ago, I was reading some stuff and came across this word, salutogenesis, and I thought, what a weird-sounding thing. You know, it just doesn't flow. It, it, it's, it's, it's an odd-sounding term, but the more right. I read about it, the more enthusiastic I got because chiropractic is about the only profession I know that sometimes seeks to define itself in terms of what it doesn't do. Well, we're drugless, we're non-invasive, we're non-surgical, we're non-medical, we're non, 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 non. And I said, well, yeah, but can you imagine going to a party and asking someone, what do you do for a living? Say, well, I don't prepare food. I don't fly for the airlines. Uh, You know, I don't wire houses. Well, okay, but what do you do? And the beautiful thing about salutogenesis is it's a positive thing. Uh, And it's actually far broader than chiropractic. And the idea is we help individuals, we empower individuals to express their potential by removing interference to the expression of that innate potential so that we can help them create health, realize their dreams, and become what they want to be.
1: All right, everyone. The Dr. Alex Show is brought to you by Shed Light Cold Lasers. And Shed Light Cold Lasers has been a game changer for us at HML, professionally and personally at home. Personally, on a, on a personal note, I had a very bad bout of vertigo and i got probably 85 percent there by going to a few different functional neurologists over the years to help me out with it then i bought this and this is a game changer because one it's portable that means i can take it to the office use it on patients all day make sure it stays charged come on home and then throw it in my pocket and use that home and this is what cleared up my vertigo now professionally the way it's it's, uh, been the game changer for us in the office is that it has cut our results down by 50%. This can get used on just about anything, any disease disorder that you can think of, it can pretty much get used on. Now, as far as how it has helped us out, it's cut everything down by 50% on our times. So when we're working with our kids with special needs, Uh, when we're working with our chronic neurological disorders autoimmune diseases to get those people into a good point that they're happy and that we're happy times have been cut by 50 percent you will definitely want to go check out shedlightcoldlasers.com or email griswold at shedlightinformation at gmail.com 518-338-6658 well all right everyone welcome back to the dr alex show As you are listening to this, we took a bit of a break. Uh, We had uh, just a couple months of getting away, but we're back. And I get to interview another one of um, the gentlemen that really shaped my mind. The last major interview I had that really uh, was profound for me was Dr. Robert Muello, a main mentor, one of the main people I've learned from. But before that was this gentleman here, Dr. Christopher Kent and i'm gonna yak on for a little bit because he's got to know the impact that he's had on me therefore the thousands of people or maybe the tens of thousands of people that he's had an impact on uh, with all the patients we've seen so early on dr kent i worked for a gentleman uh, that i uh, I, I was not even in undergrad. Actually, no, I was an undergrad. He hired me as a CA because he got me into the profession. Uh, he knew Dr. Jintempo at the time. He's on a first-name basis with him. And uh-huh. he ended up um, obviously owning an Insight Subluxation station as well as the Chiropractic Wellness Alliance uh, uh, all-in-one device there. Uh, and, and I was running the Insight Subluxation station exams and the CWA uh, exams and I don't remember what that device was called, but, um, I was running all of those. And then he also gave me a bunch of discs for my road trips when I was road tripping around the country and doing useless things as a 21 year old and seeing friends. He gave me on purpose and on purpose. Everyone is a audio now might be video subscription service. I'll like Dr. Ken explain that maybe, yeah, still uh, audio. And- okay. Uh, back in the day, it was DVDs that were sent to your home. And for all Actually, of those... Actually, and-
0: began with cassettes. We ah. began with cassettes, and then cars stopped being made with cassette players, and we couldn't find anyone who would reproduce them for us. They said, you know, we got rid of all our cassette stuff, so we switched to CDs, and now, of course, uh, you know, we, we stream, we have MP3 downloads and things like that, so... CDs are still available for the dinosaurs who have them. And (laughs) we have a faction that has said, we want our CDs. Okay. So
1: I, so I, I listened to you guys talk to other people in profession. I listened to you guys just talking to each other. And then when I got to school, I started subscribing to it. And of course listened. And what would happen would be, I would, have a 40 or 45 minute commute to school. So I listened to you guys each disc. Um, There were three discs, by the way, everyone, you would have a program on science, a program on philosophy and a program on politics or news of the profession. And I would listen to each one three or four times a month. And that was the start of Alex quickly becoming the guy who would ask a lot of questions to all the professors in school. And I didn't realize it, but I was cornering them and they no longer had any answers for me um, because I would be talking about what you call the S word ah, talking yes. about, God forbid, I go to, I'll say it, Cleveland University and I talk about subluxation and I end up uh, uh, not getting in TIFFs, but uh, in, uh, unintentionally cornering my old professors and uh, uh just looking like a complete jerk, uh, looking back, but, um, either way, neither, neither here nor there, it was you guys that really shaped my ability to learn and start understanding science and having, um, questions about even the simplest thing of our randomly controlled trials, even something that is applicable to our profession. I remember you guys going over some research and these, uh, people were stating, maybe these aren't meant to be used in holistic healing arts. Uh, maybe we need to use different forms of research. And then you would start bringing up the question of when you're talking to people about research and science and what's valid and what's not valid and reliable and not reliable, you start with the question of what will you accept as evidence? And uh, I, have, I had uh, shut up many professors by asking that question because they would not be able to answer back that question. They wouldn't be able yeah. to tell me case studies or case series or randomly controlled trials or or whatever it was, they would not come back with an answer. And that's how I cornered Mm -hmm.
0: them. (laughs) It works like a charm. I still teach that technique today.
1: (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, thank you for coming on. You'll have to tell the audience more of who you are and what you've done and um, everything you've done for the profession and therefore the world.
0: Oh, goodness. Well, I'm Christopher Kent. I graduated from Palmer College back in 1973. And when people say, well, why didn't you go to Sherman? I said, didn't exist. Why didn't you go to Life? Didn't exist. Why didn't you go to Life West? Didn't exist. Yes, I'm really that old. So I have lived much of the history of chiropractic. Uh, Next year will be my 50th year, uh, which is a pretty exciting thing. And I wanted to get chiropractic to as many individuals as possible. So it had always been part of my vision to become a teacher because I thought, Hey, if I take care of patients, I can reach a lot of people. If I can teach others to do it, I can reach substantially more. So, um, uh, I joined the Palmer faculty, uh, after graduation, uh, I established a private practice and then a number of political issues. Uh, we're going on at Palmer College. Uh, CCE was taking over and radically changed the direction of the educational program. And I decided it was time to, as we used to say, go over the wall and enter full-time private practice, which I did in Florida. And then I met uh, Patrick Gentempo, and we got involved in developing technologies to assess vertebral subluxation, and its neurological manifestations. And to us, that was a very big deal. Because we observed that there were a lot of great chiropractors that were philosophically sound, uh, that had hearts of gold and were committed to doing the best they could for their patients. But some of them were suffering from what Patrick used to call the silent dread. And that is that, They weren't quite sure they were delivering the service they thought they were. They weren't quite sure that they were actually improving neurological function. So we started out with surface EMG, which measures the electrical activity produced by muscles, and uh, we all were taught to palpate the paraspinal regions for areas of taut and tender fibers and we thought, wouldn't it be cool if this could be quantitated? So uh, we developed surface EMG protocols for chiropractic. Uh, We were always interested in autonomic function, the part of the nervous system that controls the organs, glands, and blood vessels. So we improved upon the thermal technology, looking at skin temperature differentials and vasomotor activity, which is key to adaptation and finally, the one that I was and remain most excited about, and that's heart rate variability, where yes. we're looking at how effectively the body is adapting uh, to environmental dynamics. Uh, i share a story with you. I think you'll like this. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you haven't. But I got into an argument with a research professor or a person masquerading as such at a chiropractic college. And he said, you know, you chiropractors have it all wrong. You say the nervous system is the master system of the body and that it controls and coordinates all function. He said, that's just not true. And I just let him rant and get it out of his system. And uh, I said, well, why would you say that? He said, well, take the heart, for example. He said, I can remove a heart from an animal, even a human being and it will continue to beat without any connection whatsoever to the nervous system. And I said, yes, there is an intrinsic pacemaker, but let's continue this thought experiment. If the person you excised the heart from, and now it's in a jar, started to run, would the heart in the jar beat faster in response to increased demand? And he looked and kind of was speechless. And I said, Yes, there is an intrinsic pacemaker, but the body's ability to adapt is dependent upon the integrity of the autonomic nervous system. Well, that kind of ended that discussion. So uh, uh, then what? Well, I've been involved in political stuff. I was uh, chair of the NGO, which stands for Non-Governmental Organization Health Committee at the UN. I've been to WHO, I've been in uh, those places that people went November 6th that I was allowed to be in at the time, uh, to, to lobby legislators and so forth. And uh, yeah, when I turned 65, I thought, you know, it's really not my vision to spend the rest of my life watching the grass grow, um, or or playing golf or something, not that there's anything wrong with either. But I I need to be involved. So uh, I joined the staff at Sherman College and uh, currently director of the Center for Scholarly Activity, which is kind of a combination of evidence-informed practice and research. It's a a department that I had suggested and the college agreed, and it's up and running. So that's what's happening now. And on purpose, by the way, which is, I don't know, 27, 28 years old, something like that. I joke mm-hmm. that we started on wax cylinders and, and then went to, to cassettes. But in reality, uh, the early sessions were recorded on a reel-to-reel tape recorder in a living room uh, oh, before we started geez. going into a studio and doing it professionally. You so, know, uh, how much in chiropractic is still around 27 years later?
1: That is, that is just so cool. I so, uh, the other little uh tie to you, not only uh, I, I guess, uh, directly and indirectly, um, I got to go to Dr. Gentempo's um, what is that boot camp that they did? Do they still do it up in Total Colorado? Solution. Yeah. Total solution. Total solution. Mm-hmm. So my old, my old mentor, um, uh, flew me up there as, as un, in, in undergrad, and I got to, meet and listen to nathaniel brandon and mm-hmm. dr gentempo for 72 hours i uh, just completely mind blowing um when mm-hmm. when people talk about the concept of like self-esteem by the way which was refined by nathaniel brandon everyone mm-hmm. um it, our understanding of self-esteem was nathaniel brandon i cannot even go on i i could go on forever about that guy but then also uh so not only did i get to do that camp but there's an fine doctor um all but a hop skipping a jump across the freeway from me whom his daughter is our next door neighbor dr hugo gibson says hi oh yeah i remember him well <laughs> yeah we
0: had some great conversations you know he came from paula
1: yeah oh he's well he he he's hard to forget i mean he yeah. he graduated quite a did he graduate around your time? He's going on his 50th year as before. well. Before,
0: yeah, I think before.
1: You know, I, I remember uh, I
0: think... him for rugby. That's you know, I almost think Hugo Gibson rugby. Um, yes. but obviously there's far more depth to him than that. And yeah. uh, I remember him talking to me, saying, you know, he decided that he wanted to get into teaching after you know quite a while and very successful practice. And uh He said Cleveland was really the only school that said, "Yeah, come on down." So he did, and uh, he's built a great career there. And I'm I'm delighted that he has, uh, you know, continued uh, holding the torch for subluxation centered chiropractic, because the school has changed quite a bit. I was lucky enough to have met Carl Cleveland the first. Uh, Of course, no Carl the second from all kinds of stuff that we've been involved in.
1: Yep. And, uh, Carl
0: Third. So, yeah, I, I saw the three generations of Cleveland's and I kind of saw a change in the direction of the institution too.
1: Yeah. It, it, Cleveland did change. And part of that change, uh, some people would argue was actually, um, it not going into it too much. Dr. Gibson was, he, he left or was let go or something happened. They mm-hmm. didn't, They no longer got along, but he is uh, happy on in his shack in the corner, as he calls it, Mm -hmm. because he's got a house with a practice in the basement. And he Mm -hmm. he's 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 touching 80 and he still won't stop practicing. Yeah. Um, uh, But we uh, we were over at his place not too long ago. And of course, we're with neighbors and friends and him and I get together. And then the next thing you know, the the entire table is talking about chiropractic and philosophy and Mm -hmm and um your name came up and then i was like you know what i'm going to contact him and i want to interview him i want him on my show so um but yeah he says hi so he's he, he's doing great they're yeah. they're getting ready to go on a family vacation to celebrate his i believe 80th birthday and 50 years in practice
0: yeah isn't that fantastic
1: oh it it is awesome he yeah. he gave me my first green book we we went over and saw him met him and his wife uh, my girlfriend at the time now wife went over there and we were supposed to stay for an hour. And that was like at six 30 after you closed up. And then next thing we know, we're there until one in the morning having, yep. having hors d'oeuvres and libations as Fred Barge would say. And uh, yes. And then one thing led to another and he gave me a couple signed copies of uh, some green books. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, it was, it was awesome. Truly treasures. Oh yeah, they are. Uh, they, uh, they um, In fact, they don't sit out in the open in the house anymore because we have too many mm-hmm. neighborhood kids that come over. So they, they they, stay up on a shelf away from everyone. <laughs>
0: Very wise.
1: Yes. Well, well anyway, um, you had brought up, you wanted to talk about one of your most recent presentations and I think that would be great. And for everyone about to listen, you're going to hear some pretty heady stuff, but it's a concept that is true to what we do in our office and most chiropractors do. And it's about the concept of actually creating health as opposed to managing symptoms or, or trying to manage a disease. It's actually talking about getting people healthier.
0: Yeah. A number of years ago, I was reading some stuff and came across this word salutogenesis. And I thought, what a weird sounding thing, you know, it just doesn't, flow. It's it's an odd-sounding term, but the more I read about it, the more enthusiastic I got because chiropractic is about the only profession I know that sometimes seeks to define itself in terms of what it doesn't do. You know, well, we're drugless. We're non-invasive. We're non-surgical. We're non-medical. We're non-non-non-non. And I said, well, you know, can you imagine going to a party? and asking someone, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I don't prepare food. I don't fly <laughs> for the airlines. Uh, you know, I don't wire houses. Well, okay, but what do you do? And the beautiful thing about salutogenesis is it, it's a positive thing. Uh, and it's actually far broader than chiropractic. And the idea is We help individuals, we empower individuals to express their potential by removing interference to the expression of that innate potential so that we can help them create health, realize their dreams, and become what they want to be. And we're not saying that there isn't a time and a place for a mechanistic model that involves interventions in, in radical situations or, uh, developmental variants that don't respond to conservative methods and things like that. There's a place for the pathogenic model, but the salutogenic model is so needed and so missing. It, it, it's it got me really excited. You know, we've, we've had some very challenging times, uh, this last couple of years. And, uh, Back in 2015, I co-authored an article uh, in Explore, which is, you know, an interdisciplinary journal. And what we wrote was, although the Western world is the most technologically advanced civilization to date, it's also the most addicted, obese, medicated, and in debt adult population in history. Wow. And that was before, you know, the events of 2020. Right. And back then, oh, yeah, we wrote that back in 2015. So Amazing. if we take a look at how we in the United States address so-called health and what masquerades as healthcare, care, the United States spends almost twice as much money as the next highly technological uh, country on the list. Uh, the US spends about pre COVID $3.7 trillion a year on so called healthcare. That's 17.9% of the gross domestic product. And if you want to look at the real world impact of that, about 62% of US bankruptcies are attributable in whole or in part to inability to pay so called healthcare expenses. So Holy cow. January, and if if you think that number is, is kind of shocking, from nothing less than the journal of the AMA, October 20th, 2020, the title of the article is The COVID-19 pandemic and the 16 trillion dollar virus. Wow. You know, it's hard to wrap your head around numbers like that. So I did a little math. Actually, I should say I had someone do it for me. And uh, if you were to start counting today, just, you know, one, two, three, it would take you 11 days to count to a million. It would take you 30 years to count to a billion. And if you live that long, it would take 300 centuries to count to a trillion. That's the kind of money we're talking about.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well,
0: so it's the other side of the coin. You know, some people say, well, that's great. We've got the best medical system on the planet, we have the finest technology. Uh, You know, we have MRIs on every street corner, we have all these fancy drugs, we have uh, the best equipment, the best surgical techniques, the most highly trained physicians and other health professionals. But when we look at what we're getting for it, wow. The US ranks 37th in overall healthcare performance, according to the World Health Organization. We're still 37th? Yeah. And that number has held for a long time.
1: It was was 37th when I was listening to you in chiropractic school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's still kind of that. and if we look at medical errors and iatrogenic events here in the United States, they're a leading cause of death. And in fact, there was a paper uh, back in 2016, not that long ago, on causes of death in the United States. And the BMJ wrote, based, or an author in it wrote, based on our estimate, medical error is the third most common cause of death in the US head of cancer and heart disease and they said you know we really don't have great numbers because get this there's no diagnostic code for it there's no ICD code for medical error <laughs> so oh. it's much more difficult to track than right. you know identifiable disease but it's way ahead of COPD suicide motor vehicle accidents things like that
1: now that that stat it, 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 is this the same stat or is it from prior research i want to say is it like last name star was the researcher that talked about the the iatrogenic causes of death and medical errors yeah well um, we have to
0: differentiate between the two because you know a medical error obviously is where the practitioner made a mistake but mm-hmm. iatrogenic deaths the doctor didn't necessarily do anything wrong It's just, Mm hey, stuff happens. And um, when we look at the combination, and and I've I've read several papers, and they're all kind of difficult because it's hard to get good data on that stuff. But according to who you read, uh, it's either number one, number two, or number three. So number three is pretty conservative. Jeez. But listen to this. This kind of says it all. And, and it, it you know, transcends the divisions we have in, in health care. This is again from JAMA. On balance, the data remains imprecise, but the benefits that U.S. healthcare currently delivers may not outweigh the aggregate health harm it imparts. In other words, they're saying we know we're helping people. We know we're hurting people. We don't even know if we're breaking even. But here's what's inspiring to me as a chiropractor. Same article, same authors, Kilo and Larson. Healthcare contributes only about 10% toward reducing premature death. And of course, by healthcare, they mean medical care. And they write, even a perfectly designed delivery system would prevent only a modest proportion of premature death. So what about the other 90%? The other 90% is the kind of stuff that we do. That's right. And that people have control of. So where do we stand today? You know, I've never seen in my 70 years on this planet a situation where there's more fear. People are fearful for the physical and mental health. They're fearful about the direction of the economy. They're fearful about socialization of their children. And that great harbinger of fear, of course, is uncertainty. People feel a loss of control. If we take a look at stats from the CDC, no less, during late June, 40% of US adults reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse. 31% reported anxiety or depressive symptoms. 26% 26% trauma, stress-related disorders, PTSD-type things. 13% started or increased substance use. And if this doesn't wake you up, I don't know what will. 11% of U.S. adults seriously considered suicide. Not just a passing thought. Seriously considered suicide.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Oh, it gets worse. What about teenagers? You know, adolescence should be. I mean, you should be having the time of your life. You know, this is when you're you're exploring what your life and purpose are, and and what your values are, and developing relationships with people, and and sharing ideas, and and being challenged, and developing the you that is you. Well, here's a study from European Child and Adolescent Psychiatry looking at Chinese adolescents during. COVID-19 era and it says the prevalence of depressive symptoms anxiety symptoms and a combination of depressive and anxiety symptoms was 43.7 percent 37.4 percent 31.3 percent these numbers are staggering over a third are experiencing depression and anxiety God. so my old buddy weird al einstein <laughs> You've heard this quote many times, I'm sure, if you're an non-purpose listener. The significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. In other yes. words, doing more of what's been shown not to work isn't going to solve the problem. And that seems to be the direction that politicians are taking, whichever side of the aisle you're on. If we yeah. can just somehow get more medicine to more people for less money, everything will be okay. Well, doing something that is grossly inadequate to address these challenges, something that overlooks key dynamics that are associated with with how we live, how we perceive ourselves, and how we interact with others, we have to do that because if you keep doing the same thing that been shown to be inadequate. Well, what do you think is going to happen? So, this guy, Aaron Antonowski, came up with a very fascinating model. And that idea he called salutogenesis. So, what's this weird sounding word mean? Well, it comes from salus, um, which means health, invincibility, you know, positive stuff like that. You know, why do soldiers salute each other? Uh, You know, because health and invincibility are a good thing to have, especially if you're facing the challenges of war. What do people say when they toast? Salute to your health, right? And Genesis, you know, the birth of. So Mm -hmm. Antonov said, we're coming to understand health, not as the absence of disease, but rather as the process by which individuals maintain their sense of coherence so who else was talking about health being something other than the absence of disease you know the palmers and, and those of us who followed them that's and right Adonofsky talked about a sense of coherence what's that a sense that life is comprehensible manageable and meaningful an ability to function in the face of changes and their relationships to the environment. I mean, isn't that exciting? You know, but I run into chiropractors all the time that say, you know, well, we can do so much for low back pain. And I say, yes, many people find that a number of conditions, including back pain, uh, improve when their vertebral subluxations are corrected. But you know, if you're into back pain, what research has shown that there's a very poor correlation between pathology and pain perception, and that the one consistent thing that we see over and over and over again is that individuals with chronic pain and disability feel they have lost control of their lives, that they're not being appreciated, and that they're stuck in a loop that they can do nothing about.
1: Exactly. I did a show with, um, I got to do a show with Dr. David Hanscom, a retired Mm -hmm. spine surgeon. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard of him, but he, Yes. okay. Yeah. He stopped practicing because he realized essentially what a waste it was being a surgeon and started people helping people with their back pain by not even meeting them by doing, Mm -hmm. or, and sometimes he does meet them. Uh, By doing his online program, shifting Mm -hmm. your mindset and and getting people's what I I call getting people's frontal lobes to fire and realize that they can take control. And is it going to be perfect? No, but it's a journey and it's going to take time and you can get your health back. A lot of people can.
0: Absolutely. In fact, that kind of segues into health. And you might say, well, you know, if this idea has been around since D.D., And Antonovsky kind of put it together in his conceptual framework. What's government doing? What's the world doing? And I resurrected the World Health Organization definition of health, which, by the way, they still claim to adhere to. And when do you think they came up with this? 1948,
1: shortly after World War II. Their definition is...
0: A state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. That was in 1948. What is WHO doing now? Chasing specific diseases. They still haven't Mm -hmm. got it. Yikes. So I thought this was kind of cool. You know, salute to Genesis. Um, Patrick and I started talking about this, you know, a long time ago, as you know, being an on-purpose listener. Oh, yeah. And... Not long ago, back in the 2019, Psychology Today published an article called "Why Salutogenesis is the Best New Word in the Dictionary." Because wow. yeah, Merriam-Webster finally put it in the dictionary, and uh, they said, "Yeah, this is this is the best new word," uh, even though it sounds kind of cumbersome. Wow. So you know, if we compare the two models, the pathogenic model, you know, that looks about disease and infirmity and works retrospectively to figure out how you can avoid, manage, eliminate, or treat a disease. But salutogenesis is prospective. It's moving forward. It's the study of health origins and causes. And it looks at how to create, enhance, and improve physical, mental, and social well-being. So if we look at the two, you know, what's the goal? Well, in the pathogenic model, uh, prevention and early detection of disease. And that's that's not a bad idea, but again, it's very incomplete. Whereas in the salutogenic model, we're seeking to maximize the expression of one's innate potential. The strategy in the pathologic model is passive. You know, the doctor gives you something, does something to you, whatever. Whereas in the salutogenic model, the doctor is a partner a coach in a strategy based on empowerment. In sharp contrast, the pathologic model is based on fear. You know, it's all about fear. You know, why should you get your blood pressure checked so you don't die? Why should you get your prostate poked so you don't die? Why should women get mammograms so they don't die? You know, have you ever heard anyone say colonoscopy to enhance your life potential? No, it's all about fear. <laughs> it's all about preventing something bad from happening. And right know, it's doctor's orders. It's delivered as an event or series of events based on a condition. Whereas in the salutogenic model, we're focusing on a lifetime process of realizing your own goals and dreams. They're aimed at changing your chemistry based on normal values and epidemiologic data. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a quick glance at those two models. And again, the pathologic model isn't necessarily wrong or inappropriate when facing certain challenges in life, but it is so grossly inadequate. And the Jack model is so empowering, it takes you out of being a victim and puts you in control of your own life and your destiny, which to me is a very exciting thing.
1: Empowering. it. It, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's empowering and not not to keep singing your guys' accolades, but that strictly reminds me of when I was in school, they wanted us to basically like write a business plan of sorts. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, the exact project I don't remember, but we had to come up with a slogan. And uh, of course, after listening to you guys for hours on end, I came up with educate, empower, impact.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and of course I got questioned about, so what about, what about helping people? What is it like out of pain or whatever the question was? And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, it's not there. That's not the purpose of this. This, Mm -hmm. this is what we're trying to do in terms of letting people understand that they can get their health back in their hands or their family's hands, uh, without having to feel, uh, and be in that victim mindset. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not, not always easy, but
0: yeah. And you know, they, they defined as these salutogenic advocates, uh, three common factors in people who enjoy health. They said, what, what do common, what, what's in common? What What do these people share? People who are healthy and exude health and believe they're healthy. And the first is control. And that's the person's belief that they're able to influence the course of events. They're not victims. They're not working at a job they hate to impress a boss that they don't respect to provide material needs of a family that they're alienated from. Um, people that are healthy control. Right. Second is commitment. And that's embracing a curiosity and a sense of meaningfulness for life. That life has meaning, that it has value, and that I can control my life to experience that sense of value and meaningfulness. And the last one, and this is important, the individual's expectation that it is normal and beneficial for life to change. Um, You know, it's it's been said, uh, uh, pain is unescapable, but suffering is optional. And the reality is... We can't control the cards we're dealt, but we have absolute control over our response to how we deal with it, what life advances. Yes. And whether we perceive that as a threat or whether we perceive that as an opportunity for growth determines what kind of physiologic response we're going to have going to go into freeze, fight, flight, or are we going to go into a reward cascade where we expand our scope of adaptability and experience the joy of dealing with challenges rather than looking at them as threats? No. So, no. You know, lots of ways we can assess salutogenic stuff, uh, there are paper and pencil tests, you know questionnaires there's a sense of coherence scale a self-efficacy scale the salutogenic wellness promotion scale one that i think is cool sounding is the flourishing scale and it's just an the question thing but uh yeah are you flourishing huh i like that uh then there are physiologic measurements like heart rate blood pressure heart rate variability and such simple things as strength and flexibility um, right I just read a paper that said, you know, how long you can stand on one leg correlates with all cause mortality.
1: Uh, Uh, that is, uh, that's on my reading list. I heard that that came out.
0: grip strength too correlates with all cause mortality. That's, that's pretty wild. And then of course there's the lab stuff, uh, cortisol and high sensitivity C-reactive protein to look at inflammation, kind of a common denominator, uh, Hemoglobin A1c, looking at metabolic syndrome, immunoglobulin A, histamine, and then, you know, the neurotransmitters, serotonin, GABA, dopamine, glutamate, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Uh, These are things that can can be objectively measured. Uh, Of course, this is probably more a research thing than it is something a lot of people will do in clinical practice. But it shows that, you know, not dealing with some sort of, um, you know, bizarre hyploid hollow from the 60s that this is, is very real, very tangible, and right. has, has measurable consequences.
1: Yes. Um,
0: so what's what's the deal? What are we all about as chiropractors? Well, it's about adaptability. And if you've read Stevenson's, you know, we talked about the Green Books earlier, you know, one of the five signs of life is adaptability. And adaptability listen to this this is from uh, a paper in a journal called genes brain and behavior what a cool name for a journal it says this enables the integration of genetic epigenetic and environmental factors for coordinated regulation of adaptations and the biological pathways to adaptability are the interactions between the genome our genetic legacy the epigenome genetic expression which we can control by making our life choices. Um, Neuroplasticity, the nervous system, the environment. This is in mainstream medical literature, but you kind of have to
1: look for it, you know?
0: Right. Uh, The old cliche goes, it's hidden in plain view. Um, It's there if you find it.
1: Something like that won't be shouted from the rooftops.
0: Yeah, this, this timeline, you know, we have the neural response. Real fast, you touch your hot stove, you pull away before you feel the burn. Neuroplasticity. We have the ability to not only rewire synapses, but for there to be changes in the connectomes, the interconnectivity uh, of various parts of the brain, as well as anatomical changes in the brain. And epigenetics. you know, when I was in high school, they told us, oh, watching the Crick figured it out. Uh, your genetic legacy, that's it. You'll never be any better than that. So right. uh, how depressing. But now we know that environmental dynamics and our response to them changes which genes are turned on and turned off. In fact, uh, there was a paper by Dean Ornish, uh, who's a, a medical physician, Was very much into wellness stuff, and he is it the cancer paper where you could yeah this is this is a paper dealing with prostate cancer yeah and prostate cancer is kind of interesting because you know it has a very high survival rate unless you have a form that's that's really fulminant but that's the exception rather than the rule sure so a lot of men who have prostate cancer choose not to have it treated so there's a pool of people that you know don't and Dean. Ornish said, okay, we're going to do um, a study where we compare the two, where we compare men who've declined treatment for prostate cancer, who don't do our protocol, with those who do. And he found that there were, oh, I think it was 400 or 500 something genes that were turned on and off as, as a result of that. And, you know, I really commend him because his colleagues were always kind of ragging on him, saying, you know, and, eh, you know, and this is all kind of dippy conjecture. And, uh, yeah, it was published in a pretty prestigious journal, too. I forget which. But, yeah. I remember so that study. Where did, yeah. Where, where did this start? Good old D.D. Palmer, you know, the discoverer of chiropractic. He asked that question. Why is one person ailing when his associate, eating at the same table, working in the same shop at the same bench, was not, they're subjected to the same environmental stressors. They're eating the same food, They're working in the same place, breathing the same air. One is sick, one is not. And he said, the reason is because that there are differences
1: in them. And if we- Nailed it, A- 1895.
0: Nothing, nothing less than the Journal of Human Physiology in 2009 they came up with a term called pre-nosological conditions. Now, nosos means disease. So it means things that precede disease. And they define uh, pre-nosological conditions as borderline states between health and disease. Like,
1: so, uh, Like in school, we call pathophysiology?
0: Yeah, yeah. So what they said in this book was that health should be regarded as an equilibrium between the body and the environment. To ensure such equilibrium, the regulatory systems of the body should work intensely. And the degree of tension. And who talked about tension? D.D. Palmer. He talked about tone being regarded as a measure of health. Uh, he wrote, life is the expression of tone. It's the null degree of nerve tension. And I think it's just amazing that in... The journal Human Physiology, and papers like you know, in health and behavior, that these people are are discussing this very same concepts that were discussed in chiropractic. In fact, um, I've been privileged to present, do that again. Here's your one edit. I've been privileged to present at a number of medical conferences and, and webinars where I was an invited guest. And it's amazing how once you leave the bias of the U.S. healthcare system and you go to other countries where you have uh, physicians and scientists that are interested in nervous system function and have studied a lot of this stuff, and what they lack in many cases is a clinical application. I mean, I've never had anyone say, quack, go home. You know, I get a much better reception from them than do the many chiropractic groups because they're yeah. really fascinated <laughs> by this stuff. In fact, if any of you are interested, uh, if you go to the Sherman College uh, webpage, which is, you know, sherman.edu, pretty simple, and go to research. Um, We have videos of, you know, half a dozen or so of those presentations uh, that we've done. You can have a look at them. They're free. Have fun. But, uh, yeah. One of the guys that really impressed me was Hans Selye.
1: Oh, yes.
0: uh, Yeah, most of you have heard of Selye. The godfather. He's the guy who applied the engineering concept of stress to biological systems. And believe it or not, back in the 70s, yes, 70s, he spoke at Palmer. And I didn't know when that. he was finished, he agreed to meet with the faculty. And, you yeah, know, we asked him questions. And it was, it was really a great <laughs> interchange. Um, I even wrote him a letter back in 76 when they were promoting swine flu vaccine. Hmm. And asked him, you know, what do you think? And I never thought I would get a personal letter back from Salyade, but I did. he said, I don't plan to get it. <laughs> but wow. anyway, uh, he shared a story with us that I think anyone who's studied the healing arts can relate to. He was in a class in differential diagnosis, and that's where you try and identify subtle differences between conditions so that you can apply the right medical treatment. And he was in an amphitheater-type room, and he said the professor would bring a sick person up and have him sit on an exam table and tell the students their history and lab findings and show their films if they had any. And then he'd call on students and he'd say, well, what are your differentials? How, how do you think you would proceed in ferreting out what's wrong with this patient? And so said, well, you know, I was I was sitting in a room and I saw this parade of sick people uh, that the professor trotted out to us. And I thought to myself, you know, these people all have something in common. He hadn't put his finger on what it was yet, but uh, the wheels were turning. And as some sadistic professors are wont to do, uh, they said, hey, Sally, what's wrong with this patient? And he said, and I blurted out almost reflexly, he said, Well, doctor, he's sick. And everybody chortled and had a laugh at Celier's expense, but it got him started on this path. And he described stress as a non-specific response of the body to a demand. And this is a quote I just love because again, we go back to the writings of the Palmers. Every living being has a certain amount of innate adaptation energy or vitality. So this is Hans Selye. I mean, this guy's the one who came up with the idea of stress. He's he's got more degrees than a thermometer, and he's talking about innate adaptation energy and vitality. Yikes!
1: And you and hear again, people. And again, us chiropractors were talking about that in the late 1800s.
0: Yes. And, you know, what do people say today when they talk about dress? It's almost always in the negative context, right? They say, if only I could eliminate dress from my life. Well, I said, that's not going to happen until you uh, assume room temperature and are dispatched to the marble orchard, because the difference between you and the chair you're sitting on is that you can adapt. The chair can't. And when you stop adapting, you're dead. And so you was a little less in your face than that. He said, complete absence of stress is incompatible with life since only a dead man makes no demand upon his body or mind. (laughs) Yeah. So what does Stelje say the secret to health and happiness is? The secret of health and happiness lies in successful adjustment to the ever-changing conditions on this globe and the penalties for failure in this great process of adaptation are disease and happiness. And what a lot of people don't know is that Salier differentiated between what he called eustress, E-U as in euphoria, stress, and distress, which he hyphenated just like DD hyphenated disease. I thought that was pretty cool. So he talked about eustress and distress. So you stress or true stress is the good stuff. You know, why do people bungee jump or jump out of a perfectly good airplane for the rush? You know, they want to expand their life experience. They want to explore their limits of adaptability. You know, people go to movies that they know are likely to make them cry or get them upset. People eat foods that burn on the way out as well as the way in, and they know that's going to happen. And and why is that? It's because they want to experience more of life. They want to grow. They want to explore. That's great stuff. When that yeah. happens, favorable epigenetic changes occur, which affect not only you, but likely several generations after. But yep. The stress that's gotten a bad rap is the distress. And when most people talk about stress, they mean distress. And yeah, that's bad. That's where you perceive it as being a threat. And when you perceive something as being a threat, your body is going to go into freeze, fight, or flight. You're either going to play dead, because that was a good strategy in the animal world way back when, you know, play dead. Maybe they'll walk away and leave me alone. Um, Fight or flight, you know, do it or get out of there. And that places you in a really bad physiologic state when the threat isn't real, you know. And um, it causes inflammation, it causes immunosuppression. And today, so many people are living in fear, as we said at the beginning of the presentation, and fear is a powerful immunosuppressant. So combine fear with negative stress, a feeling that you're out of control, and a nervous system whose function is compromised by vertebral subluxation. And you have got a bad situation. But the cool thing is, human beings can transform distress into eustress by using the rational mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If you can do that, you're able to do some pretty extraordinary stuff. So, if we look at this concept of stress adaptation and forth, a guy named Porges came up with what's called polyvagal theory. And what he described as the autonomic ladder. And we mentioned earlier how we developed the instrumentation we did in the form that we did with the protocols that we did in an effort to show how effectively the body was adapting. And in polyvagal theory, uh, he talks about three pieces. One is the dorsal vagal. And the dorsal vagal, that's freeze. You know, I can't cope. And you just collapse and shut down and literally play dead sympathetic yep. oh that's the nasty one that's what we're all dealing with now yep i'm in danger and i need to run or fight back you know whether we're talking about road rage or <laughs> escapism in its various forms i gotta get out of here ah but this is the part poor just talked about that is so cool and that's the ventral vagal and that's a wonderful place to be that's you stress. That's, to use uh, his words, I feel connected to the greater world. You feel connected to the world. You don't see it as a threat. You don't have to play dead, hoping they'll walk by. You don't have to run. You don't have to fight. You feel connected. And if you want to see how powerful that is, wow. I had trouble believing is the first time I read it. But yeah, you know, here it is, National Library of Medicine. Again, it was published in the BMJ. And the title of the paper is Dynamic Spread of Happiness in a Large Social Network, Longitudinal Analysis Over 20 Years in the Framingham Heart Study. And this is where, you know, people in this community agreed to be observed and have data collected them, you know over the course of their lives, yeah. and as a result, they just have this tremendous repository of information. And in this study, they looked at the happiness of nearly 5,000 people over a period of 20 years. And listen to this. They said, researchers found that when an individual becomes happy, the network effect can be measured up to three degrees. One person's happiness triggers a chain reaction that benefits not only their friends, but their friends' friends, and their friends' friends' friends. Meaning that people have their happiness influenced by people they don't even know. Now you say, this, this is crazy stuff, man. This is, you know, uh, the kind of stuff you'd expect out of some new age guru ashram or something now this is from the BMJ I mean and it's published in indexed in the National Library of Medicine but here's what's also interesting this is not a transient thing the effect can last for up to one year and interestingly sadness does not spread through social networks as robustly as happiness and here's what the authors wrote we found that your emotional state may depend on the emotional experiences of people you don't even know who are two or three degrees removed from you. And the effect isn't just fleeting. So when we talk about chiropractic, when we talk about the correction of vertebral subluxation and allowing the nervous system to express its potential without interference, we talk about, you know, when we we adjust a person, we improve their family. We improve their social life. Um, you know, these, we, and it's not we doing it. It's their body doing it. It's their mind doing it. It's their connection to the universe that's doing it. Um, all we do is allow the interference to be corrected. But when you do that, how many of us, you talked earlier about the impact of the patients you've seen and the people that have listened to your podcast my video that sort of stuff Um, wow Uh, this brings it to a whole new level people you don't even know are benefiting from the work you do
1: that's a thought i haven't thought about in a while
0: yeah well wow um, let me give you another thought and this is pretty intense Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. That's Margaret Mead. And what we do as chiropractors is we remove interference with the body's ability to perceive itself and its environment and effectively come up with the qualitatively and quantitatively appropriate physiologic changes to adapt to change and to allow the person to express themselves fully and to me uh, that's pretty exciting stuff
1: yeah it is Ah. Oh.
0: So, so that's good stuff there you have it uh so i don't know we've been talking for what a while almost <laughs> an hour three minutes yeah minutes. yeah anyway so anything else you wanted to talk about or bring oh.
1: up? Well, I could go on forever, but well. I suppose uh, I, I suppose we can wrap it up, and uh, we will we'll have this out uh, as soon as we can. But uh, I want to say thank you for coming on. Um, I, for everyone listening, there's there's no money exchange or anything like this. We're we're talking about uh, people that come and take time out of their day to just come talk and Dr. Kent's never met me but I feel like I know everything about him um and everything he's done and it it means the world uh that that you were here um and uh, I apologize about the technical hiccups in the beginning but um it seemed like everything turned out all right and yeah. some of these concepts you have talked about I I have to re-prescribe to uh on purpose not going to lie um, have have been off it for a while but uh, there were a bunch of personal events in our lives, mm-hmm. lives seven years ago that really interrupted things. Um, but, uh, or six years, yeah, seven years ago. Getting getting back on well, track either way.
0: Well, we'd be happy to welcome you back.
1: Yeah, uh, we'll. I, I'll have to. I'll have to get back to it because just hearing what you're talking about is it. It is empowering. It, it's it's unworldly empowering. I, you know, I'm going to go back to the office for the afternoon for three or four hours and adjust some people. I'm going to assess a child with autism. We're going to talk to his family about essentially empowering them to help restore function in that child as much as possible. And mm-hmm. it, all of these concepts are so ingrained in me. But uh, having the having the redip being being dipped back in it. Uh, this afternoon was amazing and I thank you oh,
0: great I've really enjoyed it too
1: well well thank you again um I guess I guess we'll let you go from here and uh if you if you have the itch to get on again or um if there's anything I can do for you I, I just anything I, I'd love to thank you again
0: well thank you I'll leave them with uh, my usual close, which is when you're on purpose you are not alone
1: that's right thank you again All right, everyone. The Dr. Alex Show is brought to you by Apex Energetics, apexenergetics.com. First of all, to learn more about Apex Energetics, head on over to that website. If you want to get Apex Energetics directly, uh, please call them 1-800-736-4381 or you can shop our online store. You can get to our online store at myhcpstore.com, username is Dr. Alex. Otherwise, if you'd like to find a doctor that uses Apex Energetics, you can give them a call or go to the website and they'll direct you to a doc in your area that should be doing very good work with Apex Energetics. Apex has just been instrumental in our lives professionally and personally. About six years ago, we went through one of the most hellacious traumas that you can think of. And if it weren't for Apex with their stress support line of products, I probably would not be here. Point blank, period. And in the office... Making the switch from other lines to Apex Energetics has sped up our results with our patients, supporting them through their healthcare needs, um, probably by 25%, um, if not not more. And when it comes to Apex Energetics, we just want to remind everyone that we are here to not cure diseases, making claims. We're here supporting people, increasing their healthcare needs, and helping them achieve their goals. ApexEnergetics.com. The Dr. Alex Show is hosted by myself, a nerd, Dr. Alex Nelson. I'm a chiropractor, board-certified in functional neurology, and childhood neurodevelopmental disorders. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or most any of your other favorite podcast apps. The Dr. Alex Show is a production of Fredcasts. Think, speak, act.